Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 14. 2 Samuel 14. We are continuing to go verse by verse uh, through uh, the book of 2 Samuel. This began really three years ago. We started doing our study of David, and we started in 1 Samuel 16. So we have almost made it through an entire book three years later. So let that be an encouragement to you. Page 286 of your pew Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We'll look at the full chapter. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoi and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons. They quarreled with one another in the field. There was, one, there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. So they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. The king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, O oh, on me be the guilt, my lord and king, on my father's house, that the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. She said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no, no more, and my son not be destroyed. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my Lord and king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. The king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord of the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. 
Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There was born to Absalom three sons, one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. He sent a second time, but Joab would not come. He said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face, to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's go quickly to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we have opened up your word, and this is one of those texts that we just, what do you do with it? And, and let us, in preparation of diving into your word, will you open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that our entire being may see your word, believe it, be transformed by it, and see the beauty of Christ in it. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. I'm willing to bet you've had one of those moments in your life where you're trying to demonstrate to maybe your kids or someone else how to do something. For example, whenever I coach, if, if I really want them to do a drill a certain way or play a certain way, I may say, look, let me show you how this is done, right? And inevitably, you make a fool of yourself, just a complete mess of it all. Have you ever done that before? Let me show you how to fix this. Let me show you how to do that, right? And in the end, you just, you just make a big mess of it. How do you respond, surrounded by your kids or players or friends or whatever, right? What, how do you usually uh, uh, justify what it is that you did, right? You probably say something like, well, I was just wanting to show you what not to do, right? You ever, you ever tried that excuse? It never works, but we, we try it anyways, right? I've made a mess of things, but really, you guys need to know, I was just trying to show you what not to do, what not to say. Well, David and Absalom here are doing precisely that. They are going to show us precisely what not to do when it comes to reconciliation. No doubt these two have a history, and your home life and your family life is not this dramatic, right? Remember that David has done nothing to protect his daughter, Absalom's full sister, in the assault that was against her against his other uh, son, right? Absalom has returned by killing the son of David, right? So it's uh, fatricide, brother against brother. And he has essentially banished Absalom uh, to, to outside of the kingdom. These two are not, verily I say unto thee, getting along. And so what we have here is a form of reconciliation, but it's a sort of reconciliation that is what not to do. 
Let's begin here with the pretender, verses 1 to 20. Now, we've met Joab before. I don't want to spend forever on him. He's not a major character, though an important character in in this chapter. He is David's nephew. He's the general of the army. And he has significant influence in David's administration. David trusts him and will listen to what it is he has to say. Joab is also one who is willing to face reality. Imagine, if you will, you have the aging king. A scholars put David between the age of 60 and 70, and, 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 and uh, uh, you can do your own research on, on that. But, but here he is. He's an aging king who has uh, his crown prince has been murdered by the guy who is now the crown prince, So that crown prince is outside of the kingdom, not allowed in. And here is David who is aging. Now there is the most important thing for a king to leave behind is an heir to the throne. Not just any heir, but a clear heir to the throne. No nation wants to have civil war between each and every king because that adds to the uncertainty, adds to conflict, adds to civil war, adds to everything. So it is important that David announce that Absalom is the next king, his heir, and that the two are getting along. Because what will happen is, so long as Absalom is banished, David will name someone else. You know, let's just name this imaginary person Solomon, right? And, and, if he, and if he names Solomon as king, do you think Absalom is going to hang out in Gesher and watch his little brother take the throne that he thinks is his? No, it's war. So Joab understands these two have got to work something out. And so what Joab does is very similar to what Nathan did in chapter 11. You remember that when Nathan confronted David, he used the metaphor of a shepherd. He told a parable about a shepherd. Here, through this pretender, Joab will appeal to David, not as shepherd, but as king, the two main titles we have seen of David. So he hires this woman, known for her wisdom, not to mention her acting skills, and she has to pretend to be in mourning before uh, the king. Remember, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, everyone had access to the king to decide cases. He was the supreme court. The most famous example of this will come later in 1 Kings, I believe it is, And that is Solomon. Remember that the two women came claiming that this child was theirs. Remember Solomon said, well, let's cut the baby in half and y'all can share it, right? You know know the story. I'm not going to tell you how that story ends for those who don't know it. Maybe it'll creep you out. Paul will will do something similar in Acts. He appeals to Caesar, right? As a citizen, he has the right to, to Caesar. Well, she tells this story, right? She's a widow. One of her sons, or both sons, went out into the field. They, they begin to struggle. One killed the other. Now, Paul's there. Does that story sound familiar? It should. It is the story of Cain and Abel. One son kills the other son out in the field, taken straight from Genesis 4. That also sounds like the story of Absalom killing Amnon. That is on purpose. The parallels we are to see there. So as a result, the, the, the son is guilty. The clan, the tribe wants to come and hold him accountable. And accountability will mean that of his own execution. Life for life. But the widow here is saying, I, I, I know he is guilty, but I, I don't want to bring shame upon his father who will have no heir, no one to carry on the family name, and I will be left destitute. And so she appeals to David. Now, everyone agrees that when acts of injustice and acts of criminality, we must choose between, between wrath and mercy. 
These are your options. To be indifferent is unacceptable. To ignore the crime is unacceptable. Either you will show wrath to the guilty or you will show mercy to the guilty. The clan want wrath, justifiably so, towards the murderer. The widow, on the other hand, is appealing for David to show mercy. And he, in verses 8 to 11, agrees to that. However... After he says that no one will harm your boy, no one will harm you, he has the king's protection, the pretender reveals she's but a good actress. In fact, she boldly confronts David like Nathan had before. She asks a simple question. Why would you show my murderous son mercy, yet your own son is still banished from your presence? It's a good question. It's a really good question. Why are you more merciful to my son who's a stranger? Could be imaginary character for all we know. And you will not show the same sort of mercy to your own child. What a convicting question. In fact, you'll notice if you go down to verse 17 of chapter 14, she uses an interesting phrase. Um, uh, it, she, she says, um, Your servant thought the word of my Lord the king will set me at rest. That word rest is important. We'll skip it for now. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern between good and evil. Now, where do we first see someone, a man in particular, being asked to choose? Here you have a man and a woman, actually, who have been asked to choose between good and evil. It is Adam and Eve in the garden. You have, the, the, you have the presence of rest. You have the choice between what is right and what is wrong. And she is asking, will you choose the good fruit here? Will you show mercy to your child? So we move from the pretender to the, to, to the prince here in verses 21 to 27. So far, the reader might assume that this is a classic story of reconciliation. After all, maybe at this point, David realizes he has been cold and distant and hasn't taken his, uh, the injustices with his own family seriously. And so he agrees to take the first step towards reconciliation. Absalom, for his part, maybe has learned to realize while he is uh, banished in Gesher that he has made significant mistakes and he, he's been working on his temper and... Um, vows to do better, right? If only that's the story that, that we have here. That's not what we have. In verses 21 to 23, David brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. His banishment in that sense is over. But there's a catch in verse 24. David doesn't trust Absalom, rightly so. So Absalom is not banished internationally. He's just banished locally. He is in Jerusalem, but he, as the crown prince, has no access to the king, his administration. He is to be nowhere near the king, nowhere near the, the, the work of the administration. And you think about it, that typically the crown prince would, would uh, be in the place of the king, right? Uh, if the king can't go there, maybe he'll send the crown prince. He'll speak on the king's behalf because you're getting the people ready for the next king. Well, Absalom is to have nothing, no relationship like that with his father. And this, surprise, surprise, does not make things better. It makes them worse. 
Notice the language in verse 25 to 27. Now, in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, right? Um, I, I read that. I thought, I thought well, that's exactly what my wife used to say about me. We were dating our prime. <laughs> she got that from the Bible. I, that is so sweet of her. So sweet. I, 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 I tell you. And then, and then her family made me gray. So... Um, she wouldn't say that now. But, but we need to note here, this makes things from, from, from bad to worse, right? And, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, notice here, Absalom is popular. He is popular. If this description of, of Absalom being handsome, the same word used to describe Tamar, by the way, and used to describe his daughter, Tamar, later, in, in I believe in verse 27. But, but he's, this description of Absalom is the same description used to describe, first of all, Saul, right? Remember 1 Samuel 9? Um, Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man from among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Right? Sounds just like Absalom. Also sounds like David. Right? In chapter 16, he went and brought him in, David. Now he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. Right? So, so you see that he fits the mold of the sort of king Israel likes. They like tall and handsome kings. Right? He is popular with, with, within the kingdom. He looks like the ideal king, therefore he must be the ideal king. Secondly, notice that he is royal. This is the strangest verse in this entire chapter. Let's see what we can come up with here. Verse 26, he cut at the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he would cut it, and it was heavy on him. It, and he would weigh, his, the hair, it weighed 200 shekels. Now, there's a lot of debate as what is going on here. Who does this, right? It's odd to a 21st century uh, reader. Um, let us just say, for one, this is a unique description of Absalom. You're not going to find anyone else like this in the Bible uh, described this way. However, whenever you see a man in the Bible with long hair, often it is associated with the Nazarite vow. So it would seem as if possibly Absalom, at least ritualistically, takes the Nazarite vow once a year. The vow would include you would shave your head, Paul does this in Acts, and then you would not cut your hair at all until the end of your vow. This is why Samson had such long hair, had a lifelong vow. Others would have had a temporary vow like, like Paul, as we said. This seems to be a temporary vow renewed every year. So he isn't just popular. There's, there's a royal part with him. He looks the part. He acts the part. He seems spiritual like his father David is perceived to be spiritual. However, this vanity is, will be his downfall. Right? Because who, who weighs their hair? Right? I mean, that's, that's just weird. Um, but what sets him apart in the kingdom, his hair, will be the source of his death at the end of the Civil War. It is his long hair that gets caught in a tree. And there he is executed. Finally, verse 27, he's the future of the kingdom. They were born, verse 27, uh, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Right, so he names his daughter after his abused sister. Now here notice that if having a son, an heir to your throne is important, how much more so is it that your heir has heirs? So you're secure not just for the next generation, but for the generation after that. So David then is being perceived as the old. Absalom is increasingly being viewed as the new. 
And the two are not getting along. So he has been welcomed into uh, Jerusalem, and they are still not together. By the way, can I just add a point here? Absalom may look the part, he may act the parts, but he is not the parts. Because what we've learned with the story of David is that God does not care about the outward appearance of a man. He cares about his heart. Isn't that what David had to learn? David wasn't the tall and and handsome guy. He had the handsome part down, but not the tall part. His own father didn't think David was king material. But God looked at the hearts. Absalom lacks the character to lead. There is nothing more important in leadership than character. And Absalom doesn't have an ounce of that. Within the last chapter, he has murdered his own brother. And by the end of the story, he will burn a field to the ground because the general, his uncle, will not, or his cousin, will not pick up his phone and answer a text. He lacks the character necessary to lead. Let's look thirdly at the peace, verses 28 to 33. After two years, in verse 28, Absalom still has not seen his father. That, that time description is important because remember, it was two years between the assault upon Tamar by Amnon and the murder of Amnon. Absalom waited two years. David, are you going to do something? Dad, are you going to deal with this? This is not okay with me. And he gave him two years. At the end of two years, he took matters into his own hands. Now, again, what we have is Absalom has been brought back into Jerusalem. And he might assume now things can go back the way they were. And he's waited two years. And his patience cannot go beyond two years. So now he will insist for something to be done. Either his dad will welcome him into the kingdom, into the administration, or he will have him executed for murder. But something must be done. This, this, this house arrest is not over. Okay, so he reaches out to Joab. Joab won't answer that text. He won't pick up the phone, won't answer the email, direct messaging, will not even respond to whatever it is you do on Tic Tac, right? He just is ignoring Absalom with all that he can. So Absalom does what any of us would do. He burns everything he owns to the ground, right? I mean, you've done that. We've all done that, please. I mean, there's no one more righteous than that, right? We, we've all been there, okay? You just, no one will respond to your text. So you light something on fire. I mean, we've all done that. We've all done that, no, no doubt. Well, after that, Joab says, okay, I'll answer your text. And he, he uh, mediates between the two. And what we see in verse 33, the king acquiesces and embraces Absalom with a kiss. Now on the surface, it looks like these two men have let bygones be bygones. For Absalom... He is rightly frustrated at David's indifference towards his sister's suffering. Furthermore, he is tired of David's coldness. Absalom has a point. David is rightly does not trust Absalom. The murderer of his son, he is rash, he is violent, and he is unfit for the Jewish throne. What's interesting is that is exactly where these two men were at the beginning of chapter 14. It is exactly where these two men are at the end of chapter 14. David may be letting bygones be bygones, but they are no better off now as they were when this began. So I want to look briefly at some particulars here. What you have here 
is an example of what not to do when it comes to conflict and reconciliation. So what then does the Bible teach on reconciliation? How is it that we are to reconcile with one another? How are we to to work through things with people we are estranged with? Because I'm willing to bet right now, the Lord is laying someone on your heart a name, a face, and a story that you've gone the way of David. If I can just put them out of my lives, if I can put them on the other end of, of the office, if I can just pretend like none of that happened, then we can go back the way that things were. And what you're finding with each passing day and each passing year, that isn't working. What then does the Bible say about reconciliation? I think there's four or five here. First of all, contrition. Contrition. There can be no peace between two parties until the source of their division is addressed. And the source of division is always sin. It is always sin. No one gets in a fight because they love each other too much. The source of conflict, the source of division is always sin. You're not fighting over someone's uh, 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 preferred this or that. You're fighting because of sin. First and foremost, the key to reconciliation is to address your sin. Now, we naturally, as we've seen in our study of David, see the sins of others long before we see our own. But there will be no peace until we address our sin long before we blame the other person. Even if you are, uh, uh, even if the other person is 98% at fault, you are 100% responsible for your 2% there. Addressing your sin before the other party will not bring reconciliation. It will add to greater division. Now, maybe I've made a mistake or two, but let's talk about what you've done wrong, Hoss. And here's this long list I've, I've, I've prepared, right? Uh, and I look at it before I go to bed every night to help me sleep. Until you deal with your sin with humility and contrition, there will be no peace. This is not what David and Absalom do. After the Bathsheba episode, David uh, does repent of his sin. He's clearly sorrowful of it, and he finds peace and salvation in Christ. Now, however, he fails to acknowledge his role in failing to protect and honor Tamar. He also refuses to properly address Amnon's murder. Absalom should be held accountable. He does nothing to Absalom, much like he did nothing to Amnon. Likewise, Absalom has shown no sorrow for his actions. He sees himself as the hero. After all, he defended the honor of Tamar, unlike David. See how more righteous he is than his father? The burning of Joab's field makes it clear that he is just as rash and violent as ever before. Reconciliation begins with contrition. It then moves to confession. Have you ever confessed your sins to the person you have wronged? I already know the answer likely to that question. For some reason, we are allergic to confessing our sins one to another. Isn't that what James demands of Christians? Confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. If only we were quick to pray for one another rather than to blame each other. Well, we were quick to, to acknowledge our role in division and confess that to the ones that we have wronged. 
How much better would our churches be? How much better would our society be if we followed this path rather than, well, I don't like you. I'm going to use the law against you to the best of my ability. Typically, we agree to meet someone only on the condition they admit they're wrong. Such an approach is a non-starter and violates, frankly, the first step we saw. Only when we see our sin and the role we played in division and repent of it can there be peace. For reconciliation to take place, both sides must be contrite and both sides must confess. And it must be genuine. I'm willing to bet when you were growing up, I've shared this before. My parents did this to my brother and I. We fought all the time. And we always blamed the other for why we got in the fight. He started it. No, he started it. No, he's on my side of the room. No, he's on my side of the room, right? That's basically what it was. So we'd punch, we'd claw, we claw, we, we would do pranks against each other. And what did mom and dad always make us do? Say sorry to your brother. Sorry, right? You know, sorry. If they were holding me back, I'd show you how sorry I was, right? Well, that's, that's, not, that's not reconciliation. That's, that's religion, right? Mom making me do this, right? Um, no, it must be genuine. But because neither David nor Absalom acknowledged their sin, they can fail to confess their sins to one another. What if, what if when they came together, David says, Son, I've, the Lord's been working on me all these years, and I realize now the sins I've committed to you and... and, and let me just confess to you what I've done. And Absalom came and says, Dad, I, 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 am, I am sick to what I've done to your kingdom. There, there are many options other than murder. There are many options rather than burning people's uh, fields. Now, there's, there's better options than fleeing your presence. What, what, if, what, if, what if they could just talk over coffee? But they don't do that at all, do they? David kisses Absalom as a political formality. No one acknowledges or confesses anything. Unaddressed sin will remain dormant, dormant for only so long until it will consume you and it will destroy you and everyone around you. One does not wake up and decide I'm going to key my ex-girlfriend's car because they hurt my feelings. That's malice. It's because you've never addressed the sin and the conflict. Thirdly, we must move quicker. Thirdly, compassion. Here I have the idea of forgiveness. Unless sin is forgiven, it will remain. And so long as sin remains, there could be no hope of, of, of reconciliation. Having heard the confession of the other, we must con, con, forgive. Having confessed our sins, we must be quick to and ready to receive forgiveness. But we, we've talked about this before, so I don't want to spend forever on it. We were supposed to look at it some Wednesday night before um, my internet was too slow at the house. Forgiveness is both immediate and a process. It's both, right? We must be ready to forgive right now. At the same time, we understand forgiveness is a healing process that we must regularly forgive. Forgiveness is not to ignore what has happened, nor is it to be confused with trust. It is not to be confused, or, or, or forgiveness rather, refuses ultimately to, to allow sin um, to be given the ultimate and final victory. So many people have turned to bitterness because they will not turn to forgiveness. So every time that person's name is mentioned or they walk into the room, you see them on the other end of Kroger and, and, you, and your emotions change. Why? Because you have chosen forgiveness over, or you've chosen bitterness over forgiveness. Forgiveness is freedom. And without forgiveness, there can be no 
reconciliation. And as Christians, for our understanding of forgiveness begins not with our feelings, but with the cross of Jesus Christ. No one has sinned against you worse than you have sinned against your Savior. And yet, he extends to you right now, if you would come, forgiveness. Why then can we not forgive others of lesser sins? David and Absalom never seek or offer forgiveness. Absalom will remain bitter. David will remain angry. Fourthly, compensation. If we truly are sorrowful, we will do our part to restore the relationship. We will seek to make amends. This might require a public act of honor or mercy or a private act of grace. Like Zacchaeus, we should take practical steps to restore what has been broken. But what do David and Absalom do to mend the relationship? David banished Absalom. Absalom murdered David's son. Nothing is restored. Nothing is addressed. Nothing is done. No wonder then they will have, spoiler alert, civil war. Fifthly and finally, concord. Concord. If sin is the source of division, righteousness, holiness, the gospel is the lone source of unity. When two parties are estranged, reconciliation should be demonstrated and should culminate in some form of unity. There's a variety of ways of what this will look like. In marriage, this involves intimacy and open communication. Because chances are you've got some conflict with your spouse and because you haven't dealt with that conflict, you've let it go on for six months and all these other things have popped up because you didn't deal with that one thing, right? Maybe what you should do after you've addressed this, have a moment of reconciliation, you've come back together, the two become one flesh again, maybe you should agree, hey, how about we have be more open in our communication stuff, right? That would be an act of concord. For friends who have been estranged, come back together, it might be a shared meal, Right? For, for a nation, it often comes in the form of a formal agreement, right? But what has David and Absalom done as an act of agreement? All they've done is an, an authentic embrace and a kiss between two men who will go to war with each other. This is an example of what not to do. But let us instead look to Christ to see what to do. What is this story? This is a story of a son who has sinned against his father, escapes to exile, and returns without contrition only to be kissed by the father he sinned against as a false act of unity. Is that, is that a fair summary of what it is we have here? What's interesting is Jesus tells a similar story like this. But it's far better than what you'll find here. In fact, I know we're going to be late. We're going to be later because we have communion. And that's okay. The Methodists are finishing up now. So grab your Bibles. Luke 15. I just want to show you this. Luke 15. This is the story of the prodigal son. You remember the story, right? There the son sins against his father, wishes his father were dead, and takes his inheritance, runs off to Gentile country like Absalom does here. And after a time, he, he is contrite. I have sinned against my father. 
I will go and make amends with him. Father, I have sinned against you and against God. Will you forgive me? He goes to to make amends by offering to become one of his slaves, one of his servants, right? And, And notice what happens in verse 20 of Luke 15. What does the father do when he sees his son coming from a distance? And here they've had this moment of confession and tears. What does the father do? He kisses him. That's how he embraces him. That sound familiar to what we just read? Yet what is the difference here? The difference is the two have reconciled and at its root of this reconciliation is grace. The son confesses. He is contrite. He, he, he wants to make unity and he, he thinks what I have to do is compensate. I must pay you back. He'll never be able to pay him back. The sin is far too great. The debt is too high. So what does the father do? He says, no, 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 no. You are my son, and today you are forgiven, adopted again into my family. What is Jesus showing us here? He's saying this is what the gospel is, because God is a reconciling God. He's a reconciling God. And because of the work of Christ upon the cross, our estrangement with our maker, we are, made, we, we are brought back to him by the means of a savior. God is a reconciling God. And if he can do that vertically with you and I, he can do that uh, uh, horizontally between you and I. Therefore, God and God alone can heal your marriage. God and God alone can heal your relationships. God and God alone can heal your families. God and God alone can heal your friendships. You see, if God can raise the dead, he can reconcile the worst of enemies. But first, we must come to the cross. I don't know your story here this morning, but I'm willing to bet the Lord is convicting you today through someone, perhaps another believer in your life that you have not spoken to for years. You will not work with them. You will not deal with them. You will not even allow their name to be mentioned in your presence. Do you believe that God is a reconciling God? If not, I beg of you to come to the cross and see otherwise. And if you are in that sort of situation, I beg of you today, will you begin that process of healing by being contrite and by confessing? Only then will there be peace. In our society, there is a lot of conflict. What we need is a Savior who heals. Let it begin in the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, as you